All right, everybody. Hey, we're going to be in the book of Ruth this morning, and uh, a little bit different than what we've done the last handful of weeks. We have a gift for you today, if you're here. We have a handful of these left. We gave away more than we thought, which is great. So if we don't get one to you today, we'll try to get some more uh, in the next couple weeks and get them to you. But we have a, a Ruth scripture journal. Uh, hopefully somebody handed you one, either Penn or Hannah Moffat this morning on the connection team as you walked in. But I know a handful of folks went straight to kids' classes. Others came in through other doors. And so if you would like a Ruth scripture journal, because we're going to be in Ruth today and the next four Sundays, uh, we'd love to give you one, and we have a handful. If you would put your hand up now that you don't have one and you do want one, Penn and Hannah are looking around the room, and they're coming your way. So you're not the only one, and they're going to bring you one until we run out. And then, I don't know, you have to arm wrestle for them or something. That's up to you guys how you want to do that. Uh, these are a great tool because they allow you an easy way to keep record of where we've been as a church in a book of the Bible. I'm really excited this year. Uh, we're using a little bit of a different translation than we've used when we've done other scripture journals. This is the NET, which I've been using more and more and more. I like the NET. It's not better than the ESV. It's not better than the CSB or whatever you like to use. Um, I think it's more accessible because uh, it gives you translation notes. The, the version that you have in front of you won't do that, but if you look it up online, the translators will tell you why they picked the words they picked, and I like that. That's a high degree of transparency in translation that you don't usually get. So anyway, that's what we're going to use. Um, when the NET produces their scripture journals, though, they put a few extra tools in here. So I just want to mention this to you. If you have a copy of the Ruth scripture journal, you can thumb your way through three or four pages in, and you'll see where Ruth chapter 1, verse 1 begins. And then on the right side, there's a place where you can take some notes. But there's also just a little bit of encouragement if you wanted to, say, later this afternoon or later this week, integrate what we're doing in Ruth with your daily quiet time, your time with the Lord where, God willing, you have a habit of praying and reading God's word and thinking about his word throughout the day. If you don't have that habit, then this is an easy way to start, I think. Um, you see here that there's an encouragement to pray some scripture, to spend some time in contemplation based on what the scriptures teach you, and then if you want to, to even reflect, to write your way through some of your thoughts and how you think God may be speaking to you as you work through this passage. Now, the reason I'm pointing that out to you this morning is because uh, <laughs> I don't usually hand you stuff that's going to distract you from the sermon, and I just, we just did that on purpose. So I'm trusting you. Uh, not that I, you don't, whatever, maybe God will speak to you separate from the sermon through what's written in this journal, that's great, but just know that I know that that's, this is here and maybe you can hold off on using it until later and we can kind of all stay together. Uh, what we're going to try to do this morning is work our way through the entirety of Ruth chapter 1. So this morning we'll be in Ruth 1, next week we'll be in Ruth 2, the third week of Advent will be in Ruth 3, and all the Christmas Eve sermons will be built off of the foundation of Ruth chapter 4. Now that doesn't mean if you bring people on Christmas Eve that they won't have any idea what's going on if they haven't been here for the three previous sermons. The commitment that I made to you earlier during the announcements is the commitment that I intend to keep. Uh, we'll do as best we can to make it really digestible and easy to understand. Uh, but Ruth, in my opinion, is the strongest and most helpful of any of the Old Testament books in preparing us for the season of Christmas. So I told you earlier that today's the first Sunday in Advent. You heard Amy mention that as well. Let me define for you what Advent is and just talk to you for a second about why this is an important season of the church calendar to observe. Advent is a season of doing two different things at once, of remembering Jesus. So Advent always looks back in time on Jesus' first coming, that's why we celebrate Christmas. If you didn't know that, that's what Christmas is. It's the arrival, it's the, it's the advent itself of the Christ, of Jesus himself. So God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, uh, by his own will, chooses to inhabit a human body. He's fully God, fully man. He lives a perfect life. At the end of that perfect life, this is the Easter season, he's crucified as a criminal by the Roman government and by his Jewish peers. 
Um, at the close of that crucifixion, God does some really neat stuff by changing the dynamic and releasing his spirit to all who would trust and believe on Jesus. Jesus comes back from the dead. He resurrects, which really seals the whole deal. And that's how Christianity is born. We have now a new covenant. We have the second half of our Bible, what we call the New Testament, is all the writings and instruction on how to walk with Jesus uh, day to day by the power of his spirit. And that begins at the first Christmas. So there's a lot of anticipation in the first half of your Bible, in the Old Testament, as people are waiting on that Jesus to arrive. There's prophecies, there's foretelling, there's this um, really specific lineage, family tree, of which Ruth is actually a part, so that's kind of why we wanted to go there for this Advent season. But God maintains this promise that he's going to send a Messiah through thick and thin when things are going well and when they're not, and finally Jesus arrives at the first Christmas. So half of what we do in Advent, because we live after Jesus came, is we look back on those circumstances, and we try to engage with and benefit from the really rich history of the people of Israel waiting on God to send a Savior. And then because you and I are not sitting in heaven right now, there's another half of what Advent means. We also anticipate that Jesus will come again and that in the meantime, between his ascension at the end of the 40 days after he was resurrected and whatever day he chooses to return to the earth, we live in this period of time where many of the promises of the Bible are already fulfilled and available to us. Jesus himself said the kingdom of God has come and so we believe that there's a way to live, there's a way to think, there's a way to choose that's different with the Spirit of God than it would be if we were separate from him. That's very much the practical side of being saved. But there's also kind of an impractical side that's way out in front of us, which is at some point, all of time will end, Jesus will come back, and those of us who believe on him, who put the full weight of our lives on him, will spend the rest of eternity, a time without time, which is as hard to understand as it seems like it is. You can go get as many theology degrees as you want, and it won't make a lot of sense to you, but God says it's going to happen, that there will come a time without time where everything we see around us will end and be remade, and that we will spend all of that endless time with God. And so we're in between those two things. And as Christians, we live in that space all the time. I mean, 365 days a year, to some degree, this is informing how we make decisions and how we live. That Jesus has already lived, died, and been resurrected affects our lives, and that he's coming back. Gives us a sense of hope and helps inform the way that we think and how we spend our money and what kind of relationships we build, etc., etc. Advent is a season where we really dial in on that. And I think it's cool that the church calendar gives us a season like Advent because what our culture wants to do with Christmas is the opposite. Our culture wants these four weeks between Thanksgiving and Christmas to be some of the most hectic, stressful, and fast-paced weeks of your life. Between travel, purchasing gifts, trying to hide them in your house, getting them wrapped, dealing with your credit card bill that's going up, up, up because you keep thinking of more people who live far away and you need to buy them Alaskan stuff and put it in the mail and send it to them and your kids are asking for more things and you're worried, are they going to like what you got them and is that Christmas bonus going to come through and what are you going to say to your uncle who's so different from you politically and you know he's going to corner you at the punch bowl at the family Christmas party and we just, we have this sense, I think, of, of anxiety that we've sort of accepted sometimes, even as Christians that it's just okay to be unhappy and to be disrupted and to be anxious about this season. And what Advent is doing is it's pulling the emergency brake for us. And it feels like that. Some of the points I'm gonna make today to you are gonna be potentially a little bit jarring and you're gonna want to reject them because they're gonna require you to be reflective, to be introspective to a certain degree, to do what Advent says, to look back on what Jesus has already done in your life. That's sometimes hard to acknowledge because what if it hasn't been a very good year? We'll talk about that in a minute but also to look ahead and to anticipate with hope that Jesus may continue to work or he may finally do the thing that you've been asking him to do, which is also scary and hard because what if he doesn't? And what if it takes him a long time? And what if 12 more months pass and you're at Advent in 2024 and those promises still haven't been fulfilled and those requests still haven't come true? It's an emotionally challenging period of time. Though the world's way of Advent, the world's way of Christmas is fast-paced and anxious and scary, at least it keeps us moving. 
At least it provides us with enough white noise and distraction that maybe we don't have to sit with all of these negative emotions and scary questions. But what we believe as Christians is if we're real with ourselves and real with God, if we speak the truth, if we believe the truth that he gives to us in his word, that we have the ability to grow through a season like this. And maybe more than just growing in these four weeks to look back on the year that we've lived and acknowledge that we've been growing even if our experience has been painful and very hard. So in order to walk through that process, we're gonna go with a woman whose name is Naomi. Uh, She's kind of the star of the book of Ruth, at least for the first half of the book before her daughter-in-law Ruth comes into clear view and begins to take actions and move the story forward. And I think you'll find that for many of us who've had a very challenging 12 months, Uh, Naomi is a person who can relate uh, directly with what it is that we're dealing with. So with that in mind, uh, I want to ask you to go to Ruth chapter 1. If you're using a scripture journal today, and I hope you are, that's, you know, three or four pages in. And we're just going to work our way through the first handful of verses. I'll do my best to explain it, and we'll do that back and forth until our time is done this morning. Here's what God's word tells us about the book of Ruth. During the time of the judges, and I'll explain that in a second, but that's important, there was a famine in the land of Judah. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah went to live as a resident foreigner in the region of Moab, and he took along with him his wife and his two sons. Now the man's name was Elimelech, which in Hebrew means uh, my God is king, and his wife's name was Naomi, which in Hebrew means pleasant, and his two sons were Malon and Kilion, and their names in Hebrew unfortunately mean weak and sick. So uh, you can thank your parents. I don't know what your name is, but it's not weak or sick, so that's better than theirs, okay? They came from the clan of Ephrath from Bethlehem in Judah. If you're a Bible scholar, there's lots of reference points in here that are helping you know what's going on. The point for you is this. These are Jewish people. They're fully Jewish. They live under God's law. For generations, their people have been in God's land, following God's law, doing what God says. But now, this is the end of verse 2, They've entered into the region of Moab, and they've settled there. Well, why does that matter? Moab is a group of people who are God's enemies. God has explicitly told his people, don't go move to Moab. Don't do it. Well, Elimelech seems to be looking around him and thinking, things have gotten pretty bad here in uh, Bethlehem. There's no food. My family's going to starve to death, so we'll just cross the border for a little while. That's why it calls him a resident foreigner. He's not changing his citizenship. He's just going to go where the food is for a little bit, and then he plans to bring his family back. But things don't go according to plan. They entered the region of Moab and they settled there, verse 3. Sometime later, Naomi's husband Elimelech died. So the patriarch is dead. So she and her two sons were left alone. But in that culture, that's okay. Her sons can take care of her. She'll be fine. Both of her sons end up getting married and they marry Moabite women, which is also not God's plan A for their life. One woman was named Orpah, which uh, in Hebrew means back of the neck. So that's another great name you can put on your baby name list. Uh, what's interesting is later in the story, she's going to turn her back on her mother-in-law. So there's a little bit of a double entendre there in what her name is. And the other woman's name was Ruth, which means friend or companion in Hebrew. And they continued to live there for about 10 years. And then Naomi's two sons, weak and sick, Malon and Kilion, they died. Go figure, right? Maybe name your kids strong and immortal. I don't know. So the woman was left all alone, and she was bereaved of her two children, as well as her husband. And this is how our story begins. This is the kind of year that Naomi has been having, and God's gonna teach her some lessons about waiting and some lessons about joy. So like I told you, Naomi and her husband are Israelites, and they come from the tribe of Judah, and they live in Bethlehem, which is the very same city where Jesus will eventually be born at the first Christmas. Even if you're not a Christian and you don't go to church, you've probably heard of Bethlehem once or twice. You guys have seen the nativity where baby Jesus is somehow still a baby, even though the wise men are there, and it's been at least three years of them traveling, but we just kind of make it work because it's really cute, and it goes on our mantles. All of that is in the barn in Bethlehem. 
And that's the same place that Elimelech's family is from. It's the place that he leaves behind because even though Bethlehem is packed to the gills with people at the time that we find it at the opening verses of the New Testament, in Elimelech's time, there's a famine in the land. And a famine means two things. It means no food, which happens occasionally. You get a bad crop, something like that. But more importantly, it means no rain. And when there's no rain, there's no more food. And so you end up eating through what you have in storage. You work your way through your savings account, if you will, and you run out of money. And so you do what people have done in all of human history. You move to where there's jobs. You move to where there's work. And you do your best as a tradesman to provide for your family. This is what motivated Elimelech to leave the land that God had given to them. It's important for you to know in the opening uh, couple of words here of verse 1 of chapter 1 that the storyteller in Ruth, we don't know who this person is who wrote this down, probably a prophet, um, that they're wanting you to orient on the timeline of Bible history at the same spot where the Judges happens. And if you don't know the book of Judges, that's no big deal. But basically, there was no king in Israel. There were just groups of people whom God was kind of calling up on short notice to rule or to make decisions or to go to war with his enemies. And then once the job was done, the judge would no longer sit in judgment. And so this kind of cycled for a while. And then finally, at the end of that cycle, God's people got sick of listening to him, which happens over and over again in the Bible. And they said, we want a king like everybody else has. And God says, you're not going to like it. And they say, yes, we will. And so they get a king and go figure, they don't like it very much. So God was right. But at this point in time, there is no set king, which is part of why a man like Elimelech can move his family across a national border without a whole lot of pushback, without a whole lot of hubbub or issues for him and his family. So that's part of why that matters in the story. This is risky for Elimelech to do, but I think he's trying to make the best practical decision that he can to try to save his family from starving to death. Now, at the point that he dies... Jewish law tells us, if you wanted to look it up, you could look it up in Leviticus 25. I won't read it to you because I don't think you care that much. But Naomi could have remarried, okay? The woman who was widowed when Elimelech died, if she was still in Bethlehem or anywhere in Israel, then she could have remarried really easily. She could have stayed married to uh, an Israelite man. There would have probably been somebody in Elimelech's family, his brother, his father, somebody like that, who didn't have a wife and would have married her and taken over the responsibility of caring for the family. Because they're in Moab, she can't remarry. Because in that time in history, I'm not saying this is right, but this is how it was. If she had married a Moabite man, then everything that belonged to her, even her land and possessions that they left in storage back in Bethlehem, would have become the possessions of that Moabite man. And so she has to just kind of lean back and hope that her sons will be able to provide for her. Obviously, these guys are able to get married. They, they probably were on their way to having children, though we don't read about that happening in the story. And so, you know, she has a reason to think that things will work out. This is her first big crisis. Her husband is gone. But she has reason to believe that God's providing for her. She has two, I guess, not strong sons because she named them weak and frail. But she has sons that are alive and hopefully at some point can do something to help her. Those sons do get married, and they marry Moabite women, which is okay because those Moabite women then just sort of get grafted into this Israelite, this Jewish family. And so they're all kind of considered legally Jewish people, and they can go back to Bethlehem if some crisis strikes. And as we'll see in a few minutes, that's exactly what Naomi decides to do. But instead of things getting better when Elimelech passes away, things get worse. Both of the boys die, and now there is a single widowed woman in a foreign land where she legally cannot marry or lose all of her possessions and rights, and now she has two foreign daughters-in-law whom, if she brings back with her to Israel, could very well be captured, killed, enslaved, whatever. There's still open conflicts happening along the borders, border skirmishes between the Israelite people and the Moabite people all the time at this period of time. And so she's kind of stuck. She doesn't know exactly what to do. And if you can put yourself in her shoes for a minute, her life now, everywhere she looks, has become a series of scars. 
the things that used to be full of meaning and joy, the traditions at a time of year like Christmas, though she didn't observe Christmas, she had lots of feast days that God gave to her and her family in the Old Testament law. Those feast days used to be moments to celebrate, moments when they would look forward to mom making that one dish that we all love, or the way the house would smell when they would put out the branches of certain kinds of trees that were associated with different feasts, similar to how we light candles and hang greenery in our homes. And yet, now, those things that were harbingers of joy, that were signs on the road of life that here we go, we're coming up on this great season again, they've now become devastating for Naomi. They're just reminders of what she doesn't have anymore. They're empty holes that haven't been filled in her life. Imagine if you can, being in a foreign place, similar to Naomi, maybe you left whatever you consider to be home to move here. Maybe you followed a spouse who said, if we can move to this place, we'll make more money. It's a foreign assignment, so the pay is better. I know it's far from family, but we'll have our kids and they'll stay little and they'll never remember it. And you moved up here and now it's deployments and it's darkness and it's 17 degrees on a warm day and it's far from family. And you're looking around you and you're going, what are we doing here? Imagine being in that situation and then losing your person. Losing the person who is closest to you, the person who has committed their life to you, the only person really in the world who's all the way in this challenging circumstance with you. That's Naomi's experience. Maybe he got sick, maybe Elimelech had an accident, maybe one day he just didn't wake up, we don't know. But Naomi is experiencing the agony of losing Elimelech in a place where she doesn't know anybody else. So I think if we can do that, if we can put ourselves in her shoes, you can understand how a woman like Naomi, even though her name in Hebrew means pleasant, you can understand how she might become bitter. That's actually the first point today, and it's what we'll see come kind of bursting out of Naomi's circumstances, is that bitterness is blinding. And at a season like this, bitterness is on the table. It really is for all of us. Even if you have all of your family and everything goes according to plan, I think we've all lived long enough, those of us who are grown-ups in the room, to know that sinking feeling, even when you've had a great Christmas, but Christmas is now over and it's still winter and it's dark and what am I waiting for next and what am I hoping for on the horizon now? It's easy sometimes for us to become disillusioned, for us to become sucked into ourselves, for us to become bitter. It makes sense for Naomi, I think. It would be normal for her circumstances and along with her bitterness comes a loss of her faith, a loss of spiritual vision on her part. We'll see that in how she responds to the loss of her husband and her sons next. Now what's amazing, and we'll see this in the background, Naomi doesn't get to see it really clearly until about chapter three of this book, but we get to watch it happening, kind of playing out in a way that she can't acknowledge, is God doesn't abandon her. Even when Naomi's faith changes, even at times when it seems like it's totally disappeared, God is still very close by and he's still doing a lot in the background that eventually will become the foreground of her life and she'll realize he was there all along and by the end of this story, she'll rejoice, even for the loss that she's had to live through because of how God has used that. But for now, at this opening part of the story, we see a woman who, for very good reason, has become very bitter. And because of that bitterness, she begins to lose sight, as we'll see play out in the rest of the chapter today, of what's important to her, of who God is, and what he has in plan for her life. So let's see how she responds. We'll pick it up here in verse 6. So Naomi decided to return home, that's Bethlehem, from the region of Moab, and she was accompanied by her daughters-in-law, Because while she was living in Moab, she had heard that Yahweh had shown concern for his people and that he had reversed the famine by providing abundant crops. Verse 7. Now Naomi and her two daughters-in-law began to leave the place where she had been living, Moab, to return to the land of Judah. And so Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, listen to me, each of you should return to your own mother's home, which is in a way her way of saying, I'm not your mother and I can't be. Okay, she goes on to say, May Yahweh show you the same kind of devotion that you have shown to your deceased husbands 
and now to me. May Yahweh enable each of you to find security in the home of a new husband. And then Naomi kissed each of them goodbye, and all of them wept loudly, because in a way, this is closure. This is the final chapter of what has been probably a very good relationship for Naomi to treat these young women this way, with respect and with kindness here at the close of what she thinks is going to be the end of their relationships. But instead they said to her, through their tears, no, we will instead return with you to your people. But Naomi replied, go back home, my daughters. There is no reason for you to return to Judah with me. And then she gets really practical, like people who are grieving do. She says, I'm no longer capable of giving birth to sons who might become your husbands. So go back home, my daughters, for I'm too old to get married again. And even if I thought that there was hope that I could get married tonight and conceive sons, surely you would not want to wait until they were old enough to marry. Surely you would not remain unmarried all that time. No, my daughters, you must not return with me, for my intense suffering is too much for you to bear. Why? Don't miss this. Because Yahweh, the God of Israel, the living God, the God who gave us his name and by whose name we call upon him, he is afflicting me. Another way to translate that that's a little bit dramatic but is still an accurate translation is torturing. Yahweh is torturing me, Naomi says. Her perspective, her bitterness is telling her that God has become her enemy. Now is that actually true? No, and we'll see why as the story progresses. But it's what she's experiencing It feels true enough to her for her to make what is essentially an oath here with her two daughters-in-law. I mean, she intends for this to be the last thing they ever hear come out of her mouth. This is as good as her sort of deathbed message to them. She's saying, go away. You don't want to be near me. You don't want to be in the blast zone. You don't want to be close when the next lightning bolt falls from heaven and God steals away from me the next blessing in my life. She's bitter. And out of that bitterness, she has become blind. She's become unable to see how God is still at work. She's been unable to acknowledge that these two young women are blessings that God has provided in her life, and she sees her life essentially as over. She'll never marry. She'll never have more children. She's going back to Bethlehem to lick her wounds and to see what will happen next. Verse 14. Again, the three women wept loudly, because that's very sad. And then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but instead Ruth clung tightly to her. Now, we understand from the way that this passage is written that for some reason, uh, Naomi has gotten word, maybe from a friend or a neighbor or a relative who remains in Bethlehem, that the famine has ended. It's over. And so there's good reason for her to believe that if they go back to Bethlehem, which the Hebrew translation of Bethlehem is house of bread, if they go back to the house of bread, the place where there is food to eat, then they have reason to believe that she can at least live. It's sort of a similar mindset if you're familiar with, in the New Testament, the story that Jesus tells of the prodigal son. He reaches a point where he hits rock bottom in a faraway land from his family, and he makes peace with the idea that even if he can't live among his family as a family member like he used to, that even if he can be employed as a slave or a servant, at least he'll have something to eat. And I think there's a similar mindset in play for Naomi here. She's not looking forward to Bethlehem. Don't be under any false illusions. I don't think there's hope in this woman's heart at all. She simply believes that where she is, she'll die. And where she's going, maybe at least she can live. And she hasn't reached the point in her despair where ending her life seems to be a better way. So she decides to confront her two daughters-in-law in in verse 8. And three different times, she attempts to convince them to go back to their parents and to begin again. 
Now, because there's no children in play, we can assume that these women are decently young, and therefore they probably could still have a future. They could find a husband from among their own people or another Israelite family who chooses to cross the border like Elimelech and his family did so many years ago. But either way, they have a reason to believe that they could be married again, they could have children again, and that they could still have the life they thought they were going to have when they married Malon and Kilion originally. Now, the first time that Naomi tries to send them away, both girls decide to stay instead. They say, no, we won't abandon you, we won't leave you, we won't walk away from you. But once Naomi makes the logical argument about childbirth, and she says, I'm never going to have sons, like you guys will be my age by the time these new sons would grow up old enough to even marry, at that point, Orpah bails. She's like, that's a good point, I didn't think about that, I love you and this is hard, but I'm leaving, because you're right, I can still have a life here. And, and you're great, and I'm sure we could work it out maybe eventually, but if you want me gone, and I can stay here with my family and have a life, then I'll do that. I accept those terms. And so she turns her back, and she walks away. But what does Ruth do instead? She sticks close. She refuses to walk away. And I think it's interesting that at the close of uh, verse 16, which we're going to read in just a second, uh, we see that Ruth has uh, kind of waited Naomi out, if you will. And maybe you've had this experience in your life with somebody who's bitter. When a person's bitter, you kind of just have to sit there and listen and wait. Um, If you're married, you've probably had this experience with your spouse where you're tempted to start fixing, but you really just need to listen, and then you need to listen a little bit more, and then you need to keep listening, and then at the end, maybe you can gently ask, is this a conversation about solutions, or are we just sharing how we feel? I sometimes have to do this in my, in my house, and my wife does it with me as well. What Ruth is really great at, and it makes sense because her name is friend or companion, is she's really good at just sticking close and just listening and letting Naomi kind of vent and say what she needs to say and process how she's feeling. Uh, and then once she's done with all of that, we'll see in just a second that Ruth is going to come back with her own perspective on what's happening now and what might happen next. So let's read that. Let's read in verse 15 uh, and see what is, in my opinion, some of the most beautiful language that exists. I mean, this is something that's used in a lot of Christian weddings. I use it frequently when I do weddings as well. Listen to what Ruth has to say to her mother-in-law about her love and her commitment to her. Naomi says to Ruth, look, your sister-in-law is returning to her people and to her own God. So follow your sister-in-law back home. Now that alone is a step too far for Naomi. This is why I'm saying to you her bitterness has blinded her. She's encouraging this young woman to go and worship a false god. That's not good. That's, that's not, it's not a marker of God's people. That's not faithfulness in play to say, well, if you prefer to worship another god that you're more familiar with, then you go with him. It kind of shows a little bit of maybe Naomi's immaturity, which sometimes happens for us when our lives are very easy and very safe for a long time, and then crisis hits and we realize we don't totally know like, how God works or how faith works or what's going on. I think this is Naomi giving us that hint. But he sa- she says to Ruth, follow your sister-in-law back home. Leave. I'm a liability to you, Ruth. Ruth answers in verse 16 and says, stop it. (laughs) Be quiet. Don't say that anymore. No, I won't. Do not urge me to leave you anymore. I will not do it. I will not abandon you. Wherever you go, I will go. I have decided. Don't misunderstand. Sometimes when we read this at face value, we assume that Ruth must not have any other options. And so she's just clinging to Naomi in hopes that something will work out. This is a young woman in her own land, young enough to marry again and still have children and have a life and be a contributing member of society, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, she says to this woman who is really, truthfully, nothing but a liability to her, I'm going with you. This is not logic in play. Naomi has played that card. Ruth waited it out. And now here's Ruth with a a loving commitment, a heartfelt perspective. She continues to speak. She says, wherever you live, I will live. Your people will become my people and your God will become my God. You're wrong, Naomi. I don't need to go back to 
the Baal of Moab, the, the local idol, and worship him. It's not going to work for me. I'm going with you. We're going back to Yahweh. I'm going to follow you wherever you go. I won't abandon you. She goes on to say, wherever you die, I will die, and I will be buried where you are buried. May the Lord punish me. This is awesome because Ruth is using Yahweh's name in Hebrew. So now she's calling on Naomi's God, whom Naomi is already tempted to turn her back on. And she's saying, may that God who is alive and well, whom I will worship and follow to the end of my days, may he punish me severely if I don't keep these promises to you. Yikes. I don't know if you've ever had to part ways with a friend or you've had to move and say goodbye to someone that you loved, but if you were sitting around dinner or drinks or whatever and you guys were getting ready to maybe move to Alaska from wherever you grew up and your family or your friends were there, if somebody stood up and said, I'm following you, I'm coming with you, and may God curse me into oblivion if I don't, that would change your plans a little bit. You'd have to start thinking about, do we need an extra bedroom? What do we do with this person? I don't really want them to be cursed. I'm not sure I was necessarily inviting them along, but they seem like they've made their mind up on their own. So now we're going to have to work this out and figure out what to do. She says, only death will be able to separate me from you. Verse 18, when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she did. She stopped. She stopped trying to dissuade her. And so the two of them journeyed together until they arrived in Bethlehem. What's interesting to me, and it's easy to miss, is that Ruth says this incredibly moving, passionate, dramatic thing, makes this monologue about commitment and love and the future, and what does Naomi say? Nothing. She's just quiet. We know that she stops arguing with Ruth. That's good. That's what Ruth asked her to do. But she doesn't meet Ruth there. There's no sweeping return. If this was a, 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 a 1980s style ballad, right, and one person is now sung to the other, there's no second verse coming where Naomi comes back with her own perspective and makes all the same commitments and meets Ruth there. That would be common. This is covenant language that Ruth is making. She is not performing a covenant like we understand it in the rest of the Old Testament, but she's making the kinds of extreme commitments that you only make attached to a curse from God if you break them that represents a covenant. She's saying to Naomi, it's not up to you, it's my choice and I've made it. And it would be appropriate and normal and expected for Naomi to say, God bless you and thank you and we're gonna do this together and I'm committed to you as well and you can come with me and I'll be a covering over you and I'll protect you. And instead, Naomi doesn't say a word. She's just quiet, which again to me represents her bitterness. Have you ever had somebody close to you in life who's dealing with wounds or scars and you want to love on them, and you want to encourage them, and you want to bless them, and maybe you make a grand gesture, or you do whatever you can to go out of your way to lift them up out of the dumps, and they're so, they're, their conscience is so seared by their circumstances. Their, their bitterness is so blinding to them that they just, they're not mad at you, but they just sort of sit there passive. Just apathy. Okay, I mean, thank you for doing that, I guess, but it's not really gonna change anything. It's not gonna make that big of a difference. Naomi is blinded by her bitterness. And my friends, I suspect that some of us may be too. What I don't want to do is attack you. I don't want to call you out in a way that feels like, oh my gosh, I never want to go to that church again. I don't know your story. But I want to invite you into a solution for that bitterness. I want you to understand that Advent is a solution to that bitterness. Choosing to look at how things have been going and choosing to engage with whether you can have hope about the future, that's a good and right practice. It's not a waste of your time. It's very, very hard. God willing, there will be other people who will come around you like a Ruth and be a friend and be a companion and make commitments to you that you can't make back to them right now. But God's solution is not for you to stay bitter. It's not God's solution in Naomi's life. It's not God's solution for you. 
I want you to know that Jesus' will for your life, God's will for your life is that you not be so bitter that you're blind to how he's working, that that bitterness not evolve into numbness. Sometimes, like Naomi, we get hurt, and one of the first things we do is we retreat. We retreat from the people that we love and the people who we should be leaning on. It doesn't matter if you're more of a fight or a flight person, that reaction eventually plays out. You either, you either run away or you fight, but eventually you calm down and you get done licking your wounds, and if those wounds are deep enough, if they're bad enough, if they're new enough, maybe we've never had to face a crisis like this one before in our lives, then sometimes they tempt us to change our sense of self, our identity. Grief can tempt you to redefine yourself. Bitterness can tempt you to redefine yourself. Instead of seeing yourself as a person who's going through something, you begin to self-describe. You begin to say, well, I'm just this way now, and I always will be. Whatever that thing was, whoever that person was that was ripped from me, like Elimelech and Malon and Kilion were ripped from Naomi's life, we say, that damage is too great, it's too significant, I'll never heal, I'll never change, this is just who I'm gonna be now. And though the Bible doesn't tell us that explicitly about Naomi, I read that into her lack of response to Ruth. What else could be going on in her heart and mind that would keep her from responding to this beautiful, moving, emotional commitment from this young woman to her who has so much to lose? and yet chooses to bind herself to the life of this older woman who at this point in the story does not have anything to offer Ruth. Ruth is, she's numb, she's dull, she's bitter, and I believe that that bitterness has blinded her. Now, like Ruth, God puts people in our lives who love us. But also, like Ruth, the love of those people, the love that they offer, sometimes it looks different from what we would prefer. Obviously, Naomi's preference would be that Orpah and Ruth walk away and leave Naomi to die in Bethlehem or on the road on her way there. She's just accepted that this is the way it is. She wants to keep throwing herself a pity party, keep on moping, stay depressed, and just live in that. And yet Ruth says, no, no, I'm going with you, and we're going to have a good time. And I've got some songs we're going to sing while we walk along the road, and I packed snacks, and we're going to do this together, sister. We're going. And Naomi's just, I mean, maybe she grabs a, a Capri Sun, right? And she just drinks it and open. Anyway, I don't know. But they go together. Oftentimes, God provides people in our bitterness who want to take us a direction that maybe we weren't going to go on our own. Or they want to go with us as we work our way through that bitterness, but we didn't necessarily invite them. We may not necessarily be open to them initially, but God does that. He plugs us into community. He gives us people around us so that we aren't alone. And if we can try to open our minds to the idea that God knows better than we do, I think you'll see, I want to show it to you from the scriptures here, that, that God's solution by providing community and people and encouragement, he can help get you out of that bitterness. In Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church, and he's given instructions that apply both to individual Christians and to the church as a whole. So this is, this is two things at once. Paul's really good at this. He's describing literal steps that you should take as a believer, but he's also describing the way it should feel to be in Christian community, both at once. Do these things, but also this should be the culture of what you do. But here's the specific steps to take, but if you take those steps and you all do it, here's what it'll be like to be in your midst. Here's what he says. He says, love must be without hypocrisy. So abhor or hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another with mutual love and show eagerness in honoring one another. Do not lag or become lax or lazy in zeal, but be enthusiastic in spirit and serve the Lord. And most importantly, rejoice in hope, endure in suffering, and persist in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and yourselves pursue hospitality. Being in community like this meets so many of the needs that we have when we become bitter. Other people are often God's solution to the way that we've, we've healed or not healed as we've come through some terrible tragedy like Naomi has. When we've been deeply wounded, bitterness often will blind us to the blessings of community 
and tell us that it would be easier to be alone, but God wants to use his body. He wants to use his local church to care for you and to meet your needs. But here's the thing. Even the blessings of community, as good as this is, as helpful as it is to have a Ruth, a friend, a companion in a season of bitterness, it's not the ultimate solution. It's good, and it helps if you already have Jesus, and it can point you to Jesus if you don't yet. But the solution and the source of the joy that you need, though community is good and right and helpful, the source of those things is only Jesus. Joy begins with Jesus. Now you're thinking to yourself, you're a Bible scholar, right? So you're thinking to yourself, Philip, the Old Testament uh, happens before Jesus is born. You just told us that. On the timeline of biblical history, it's in the period of the judges. It it predates most of the second uh, temple prophets. I mean, you guys know all this stuff. I know you do. So you're just thinking to yourselves, there's no way that Ruth is ever gonna use Jesus' name, right? Naomi doesn't meet Jesus. Does he come to her in a dream? What does this mean? Well, this is the journey that we get to go on with her. I'm giving you the ending before we get there. On one hand, you're right, Bible scholars and Hebrew nerds. Jesus doesn't show up by name in the book of Ruth. But on the other hand, what's gonna happen in the life of Naomi and Ruth together is gonna show us the character of God, what God wants, and how how far God is willing to go to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Because this woman who has become so bitter and I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, so this is as far as I'll go for today, but this woman who is getting, has, has become bitter and has become defined by bitterness will eventually come full circle to the place where she will say that God has refilled into her life way more than he ever took. So let's take this journey together and see if we can how Jesus begins to show up in shadows and hints and clues along the way in Naomi and Ruth's life. Verse 19, so the two of them journeyed together until they arrived in Bethlehem. So they made it in one piece. No bandits, no wolves, they're in good shape. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole village was excited about their arrival. What a hard moment. What a challenging thing to bump into that friend from high school in the supermarket and the first thing they ask you is, how are your parents? And you have to say, they both died this year. And what a challenge. This woman who was an extension of Elimelech, a man whose name means my God is king. I mean, this man is very probably a worshipful, engaging leader in his community. He's a tradesman. He provides for his family. He has two young sons at the point that they leave, and all these years have passed, and here comes old Naomi, bitter to the bone, followed by this Moabite woman who, frankly, her skin is probably a different color. She probably doesn't speak Hebrew. She sticks out like a sore thumb, and they come limping into town together, and the town is pumped. They're excited. They're overjoyed. You're back. How's it going? Where's Elimelech? Where are the boys? This is her experience, okay? The, whole, the women of the village say, can this be Naomi? Now, that's a double entendre. On one hand, they're recognizing her. They haven't seen her in a long time, but I think they're also acknowledging some of the scarring that she's carrying. She looks different now. You know why. They don't know why yet. They say, can this be Naomi? And she replies to them, her first words since Ruth made that incredible commitment to her, this is what's been going around in circles in Naomi's mind the whole way back to Bethlehem. She's been anticipating, probably dreading this moment, and now having to have this moment in front of this young woman who she wished would leave her alone, but is overly excited and positive and, and chooses to be there anyway. So what does Naomi say? She says, don't call me Naomi. Why? Well, because Naomi means pleasant in Hebrew. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter or a bitter root. Because the sovereign one, or in Hebrew, Shaddai, one of the names of God, he has treated me very harshly. She goes on to say, I left here full, but Yahweh has caused me to return empty-handed. So why do you call me Naomi? You can see that Yahweh has opposed me. You can see that the sovereign one has caused me to suffer. 
And so, in this way, Naomi returned. Accompanied by her Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth, she who came back with her from the region of Moab, and now they arrived in Bethlehem, and they arrived there at the beginning of the barley harvest. Here's the credit I have to give to Naomi. Her theology is good. She actually has a pretty fair understanding of who God is and how he works. Theology is what we believe about God, if that's a word that you're not familiar with. And in Naomi's case, what she believes about God sounds bleak, according to what she just said, but it's actually way more accurate than half of what we hear on Christian radio stations or read in best-selling Christian books. What I love about Naomi is she's not so caught up in her own sentiment, in her own sentimentality, that she can't understand a God who would judge sin. Remember, all the way back at the beginning of the book, I told you in Leviticus 25, God lays out laws and rules for his people. The fact that it matters that this is in the period of the judges is telling us that Elimelech should have never left Bethlehem. That yes, he was practical. Yes, he went out of his way to care for his family, but he did so by disobeying God's commands. He chose to travel to a land he had no business being in. He tried as best as he could to take his life and his family's life into his own hands. And we don't know that God has necessarily killed Elimelech because of his disobedience, but that seems to be the way that Naomi is interpreting this, or as she would prefer to be called, Mara. She understands that there's going to be consequences when people choose to go against God's will. What she misunderstands is that that's the end of the story. She sees God as only a God who meets out wrath or judgment or punishment on people who are disobedient. The bitterness in her has blinded her to the idea that from the beginning, God has always been her provider and her redeemer and the sovereign one in her life. Now, there's glimpses of hope at the end of chapter one here, but they're just glimpses. I told you a few minutes ago that joy begins with Jesus, and so there are hints and clues that God is gonna do something really, really good, but I don't want you to skip past That's the point of Advent, is not skipping past, but waiting and sitting with the reality that Naomi is facing. Naomi knows three things without a doubt. She believes that God is alive, she believes that he is in total control, and she also believes that he is accountable for her grief and her pain. And I think she's right on all three accounts. And now she's waiting. She describes herself as empty. She says, I left full, but I've returned empty. She's done all she can do. She's tried to make the best decisions that she can for her daughters-in-law. She has humbled herself to come back to Bethlehem where she knew she was gonna face all these people and all of their questions about her family. She has acknowledged that moving to Moab in the first place probably isn't what God intended for her. She accepts responsibility. She's back among her people and she's waiting to see what God may do next. Is she bitter? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think I would be too. Is she blind to how God is already working by giving Ruth to her, by making her a way home that's safe? She's arrived back safely. Yes, I think so. She has no idea what's gonna start happening in chapter two. She's lost everything that ever brought her joy, her husband, her children, and her community. But she knows what's true, and she's back in Bethlehem with nothing left but God himself. So Naomi's theology is good, but it's not perfect because she sees God accurately. She understands he's responsible for the good and the bad that comes her way in her life. Not that he's caused evil for her, but he's allowed it. If he's sovereign, that's what she calls him, Shaddai, the one who controls all things. He could have prevented it, but he chose not to. So in some sense, he's on the hook from Ruth's perspective, and I think that's fair and accurate. That's the way all of God's people speak to him through all the Bible. But she's forgotten that God is a redeemer. She's forgotten that he's a savior for his people. She's forgotten that from the beginning, when he made the first man and woman, that he promised to deliver those people from sin. She's forgotten that God carried Noah and his family through the flood. He has always been a redeemer. He revealed his kindness to one of the patriarchs, Abraham, when he saved Abraham's son from having to be killed. He led Jacob and his family out of starvation in Egypt and into the hands, or at the hands of his son Joseph. His sovereign choice hardened God's heart. He used Moses to deliver Israel. These are all the stories that Naomi has grown up hearing. She knows who God is, but she's lost sight of those things. 
And this is a time of year for those of us who've also lost sight of God, of our faith. Maybe it's been a long time, years, since we've even been in a church. This is a time of year for that to be stirred back up in us again. For us to not remain so bitter against whatever it was that happened all those years ago that we are blind to how God is moving and who he is. Naomi was right about God in some sense because he is alive. She was right about God because he is in perfect control. He did cause her grief, but she was wrong about herself. She wasn't empty. That's where her blindness has really come into play now. Even in her bitterness, as blind as she is to God's love for her, she carried with her the seed of hope. She still believed that God was there. That's the key. Many of you are familiar with the Old Testament story of the book of Job, and the same principle applies. We look at Job's life, we look at all the things that God allowed Satan to take away from Job, and we hear the advice of Job's wife, who says to him, just curse God and die. Say out loud that God does not exist, turn your back on him, embrace atheism or agnosticism or whatever label you want to put on it, and reject him, he'll kill you, and you don't have to suffer anymore. And what Job understands, that many of us don't yet, but we may learn through this season, is that to suffer with God is far better than to try to live in some other way without him. Naomi has that seed planted still. She holds God accountable. She's angry with him. She demands an an explanation of how and why he could let this happen, but she never, ever curses him and turns her back. She wants to talk in real terms about what's going on and how things have gotten this bad, but she doesn't reject him outright, and she doesn't walk away. In that sense, my friends, we can say that joy begins with Jesus, Because she is still putting, even if it's just the toe of one of her feet, she is putting a little bit of the weight of her life on God. She understands that he is out there somewhere, that he's doing something, even if she doesn't understand or even like or even agree with what he is doing. But she is demanding from him an explanation and a response and for him to do his job and play his role. And that is right for her to do. The question I would leave you with today is, what about you? What has your 2023 been like? We have a lot to be thankful for, but many of us have also experienced loss this year as well. And like Naomi, some of us have had to say goodbye to people sooner than we expected. In the next few weeks, many of us will be traveling back to a a hometown that feels less and less like a home to us, a place where people may see us and question, is that really you? You've grown, you've changed, are those your kids? Because of how life and time have changed us. The losses and the transitions of life tend to strip away the superficial parts of us, and they tend to leave us feeling like we have nothing left but Jesus. My point to you today is that that's not the worst place to be in the world. That's actually a good and a right and an honest way to see yourself. Like Naomi, though, sometimes we aren't sure if that's enough for us. We realize that all we have left to cling to is Jesus, and we say, what gives, God? Why? Why is this necessary? Why do we have to do it this way? Why did you take all these things from me or let them be taken from me? But here's what's true for us, just like it was true for Naomi, in spite of everything that we feel. It's not just that we only have Jesus, but but the bigger reality is that Jesus wants us. God still has a plan for Naomi's life. She doesn't know it yet, but by the end of her story, she and her daughter-in-law and this other man that we haven't met yet, they'll eventually be the grandparents of a guy named David who will be the greatest king in all of Israel eventually, and David will eventually be in the family tree of Jesus, and so Jesus will come through. All this drama, when Elimelech dies, the family tree of Jesus doesn't die. When Orpah turns her back and walks away, the family tree of Jesus doesn't die. When Naomi comes back into town, changes her name, rejects all her people, and tries to find a way to grit her teeth and deal with Ruth, the family tree of Jesus doesn't die. God's promises continue forward. Eventually, Naomi will be pulled out of her bitterness and made able to see that. My hope for you is that God will do the same thing for you in this season. That as we sing Christmas songs that may not be your favorite, as we spend time talking about Jesus and how he would come and what he would do, that you would allow that bitterness that may be very real and very thick around your heart and your spirit to be worn down and worn away. 
that God would do surgery on many of us, that he would peel back and push away all the different ways that we've self-medicated and tried our hardest to fix the grief that we're carrying. And instead of trying to handle it ourselves, we would hand it to him. That's where Naomi will go very, very soon in this story. And we will see all over the pages of this book that Jesus is coming, that he's on his way, that he's gonna do everything he promised to do. He's gonna save everybody. He's gonna dry every tear, that his promised coming kingdom will fix what is wrong with the world. The joy that you and I have is we can look back on that and say it happened. The question that remains for us is what happens next? What else will God do? How else will Jesus move? How else will his church affect the world? What would God have for you this Christmas season? So my invitation to you is to remember Jesus and to anticipate him. That's what we're gonna do together on Sunday mornings here. I hope that God will work in that way in your heart between these Sundays and that collectively when we arrive at Christmas, we'll feel ready this time and we'll be prepared to rejoice that the king has come. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your word and the way that you've done so much great detailed work in the Bible to prepare us for the coming of Christ. I pray that we wouldn't skip past that, that we wouldn't take for granted the coming of Jesus, that you wouldn't allow us, God, to oversimplify this holiday into what we purchase or what we receive or who we see or how much fun we have, but that you would draw us into something deeper that's probably also harder, that this would be a season of time where we spend um, moments with you, maybe days, maybe hours here and there as we see family, as we're reminded of your faithfulness to our families, as God, some of us, we carry back the message of hope to a whole group of folks who have our last name and none of them wanna know a thing in the world about Jesus. Some of us have that responsibility to go and be on mission this Christmas. I pray that we would do what we do empowered by your Holy Spirit and because you have reached us and touched us and saved us. And God, for those of us who have grown bitter across this year or who are tempted into bitterness as this time of year approaches, would you do, do the work that we need to save us from that, to peel that back, to make us vulnerable, to make us raw, to give us the ability to acknowledge and see how you're still at work and out of all of that, God, to give us hope. That's what we ask for and we pray these things in Jesus' name.